Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host, um, occasional keynote speaker. And today we're going to talk about where do drugs come from or what happens to drugs after they don't proceed through the normal drug approval pipeline. And I've known people in this industry who said something like uh, 3% of drugs that enter clinical trials make it out the other side and are actually commercialized. And so it leaves this other 90% of biologically active compounds that are not ascribed to a to a to an indication. They don't have something they're trying to solve. Yet they could be good for something. And so sometimes there's efforts that have been put forward to go back and retest and maybe try to reclaim and redefine a potential use for some of these potential drugs. And these may be bi, um, bio, um, biotechnology-based drugs, or maybe others which are just small molecules, whatever. And we'll talk about that today. So we're speaking with Dr. Annette Bacher. She's the president of the Children's Tumor Foundation in New York City. And welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bacher. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited you're here too, because you can help us understand what happens to all of these um, orphan compounds that never really make it to prime time. What, what is the number really like when you talk about these drugs that get lost in the pipeline um, that you know never see the end of a clinical trial about how much of what pharmaceutical companies create ends up at a dead end like that? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why drugs end up at a dead end, right? There is drugs that end up on the graveyard of drugs because they're not active and they don't meet the endpoints that need to be met for approval. So that, of course, is one category, and that's a pretty high percentage of drugs that never make it. Um, and then you have a percentage of drugs that are actually good, but that a lot of pharmaceutical companies, especially in the oncology space, where we are sitting, are working on very similar mechanisms. They're all working on very similar biology. And so all these major pharmaceutical companies are working on that same biology. And then it's almost like a race, right? Who, who makes it first, either to approval or to phase three clinical trials? And while this race is ongoing, everybody is watching each other. And if a certain drug suddenly makes it to approval, then some other companies, even if these are good drugs, they're like, this is not going to make sense market-wise. This is not going to make sense marketing-wise, commercial, any non-scientific reason. And then these drugs get shelved. Now, it is very hard. If you ask me what is the percentage of drugs that end up on shelves that are actually good drugs, it's hard to say because companies are typically pretty secretive about that. You have to really be like almost a Sherlock Holmes to kind of figure out like, oh, this drug we haven't heard about for a while. This drug is really moving ahead as the same mechanism. Maybe we should check whether that drug in that other company is actually being shelved. And um, 
you would say, why would you need those? Because if that one drug is approved, why don't you go with the drug that is approved? Well, I think there is a number of reasons why all these drugs, although hitting the same mechanism, may have different chemical properties and may also hit different alternative targets. So it's not that a drug hits one molecular mechanism, typically hits multiple molecular mechanisms, right? Specifically in cancer. And some are hitting a certain group of molecular targets, what they call molecular mechanisms. And then there is other drugs with the same key mechanism that are hitting another pool of targets that could very well be very helpful for rare diseases and that are not explored today. And I think that's a really good point because rare disease space is is something that, you know, I, I know I've been personally affected by. I had a friend who died of a very rare cancer and there was nobody who, well, very few people who were specialists and no ongoing drug trials to try to solve it. And so they would just put her in any kind of clinical trial she could find to, to trust, try find find something that would work. You know, they, they have, you already explained that sometimes it may be, uh, you know, that one company influences the decision to continue with the drug. But if these are potentially useful compounds, shouldn't they be, you know, how, how shouldn't they be moving through the process to try to find some sort of indication to use them? Oh, yes, ex- exactly. You, you, you hit it. It's exactly, that's exactly the problem that we're trying to solve with the initiative that the Children's Tumor Foundation was collaborating on with the Milken Institute was to say, to me, it is almost unethical to have drugs that may help patients that are sitting on shelves or sitting in closets of pharmaceutical companies. It's unethical to have these drugs there. They should come out and they should be made available to patients that can benefit from that. So that was, in fact, the whole premise of what was called later the Bridge Initiative, was to say, okay, we know you guys have drugs that you're not pursuing. These drugs really, and we've shown it in our animal and in our cell models, have an application for our disease group, which is neurofibromatosis, or for pediatric cancer. You have to release these drugs. The problem why these drugs are so hard to get out of pharmaceutical companies is a number of reasons. There are some emotional reasons. Somebody decided to close that project and doesn't want to be wrong, right? Let's be honest. But there is another reason is that very often or all time when a project is stopped, the team, of course, is either some people are let go and other people are reassigned to other projects. So, in fact, there is nobody anymore. And talking about orphan, these drugs are really orphan. (laughs) Nobody has time or efforts or resources to look at that drug. And I can tell you that when a couple of years ago, when we spoke to Pfizer Cures at that time under the leadership of Lara Sullivan, she was part of Pfizer Cures and the chief medical officer of Pfizer, Frida Lewis-Hall, when we identified the drug and MEK inhibitor for neurofibromatosis type 1, Um, And we said that drug could really be good for our patients. It took us two years and about 100 people to get that drug spin out into a company called Springworks. And we didn't put money in it. We just put in, I always say, sweat equity by collaborating with both Frida and Lara to make sure that we kept getting the attention that this drug was a good drug for NF patients. So um, it's really hard work. So that was the... With Bridge, we thought like, okay, we get it. People have no time. People have no resources. We need to help. 
So we created this non-for-profit marketplace saying, we as non-for-profit research foundations, we will come into your company. We will help you set up your data room. We will help you assemble all the data. We will pay for the animal models. And you know what? On the other side of the, of the table, we have a friend with money was Bridge Bio, who said, we will invest in this drug if you bring us the right drug. So we thought that we had the perfect mix to go to pharmaceutical companies and say, would you play now? And I have to admit, we have had one success that we published in this Milken paper that unfortunately we can't really disclose the name because something happened to the company. But the, um, the getting these drugs out of these companies has been really hard and frustrating. And, and just for the audience's um, edification, what is NF? So NF is a um, is neurofibromatosis. Um, it is a genetic condition and it is in fact a genetic tumor condition. So patients that have NF, it's a genetic, um, uh, a genetic condition. Patients are born with either NF1, NF2, or schwannomatosis, and then over their lifetime develop different manifestations and specifically tumors that grow on their nerves. Now, the opportunity for this bridge initiative and for looking at shelf drugs, a bit like what you said about your friend, like there was no biology that pointed into any specific drug, so they were a little bit lost. For neurofibromatosis, the, let's say the opportunity that we have is that the biology of these tumors is highly overlapping with the biology of cancer. So we can, in fact, repurpose or reposition drugs from the oncology field into NF. And that is what we're trying to do. And so that's the idea of the Children's Tumor Foundation, correct? As we haven't mentioned really that outside of the beginning, but that's the organization that you're the president of that, uh, that has housed or, or spawned the Bridge Initiative. Is that correct? Well, we have, uh, yes. In fact, as a foundation, we're doing three main things. One, we're investing in research, um, but having publications is great, but that shouldn't be the end. The second thing we've done is we've developed a whole platform to make sure that pharmaceutical companies can actually learn from us and, and work with us to make sure that these drugs, that, that in fact all the biology that is being developed translates into better treatments for our patients. And the third thing we've done is building communities. And for example, the collaboration with the Milken Institute and with CureSearch for Pediatric Cancer is part of that community building, like let's get together and figure this out. No, really good. And what's in it for the company? I mean, if they have something they shelved that they're considering orphan, does it really benefit them in the long run to have a separate independent entity help it find a light of day and an indication to solve? It's a good question. It's something that we have been thinking about for a very long time. Um, on the one hand, if you spin out the company, if you look at Springworks, for example, Pfizer still has a percentage in Springworks. So if Springworks is successful, that's good for Pfizer. What um, the other angle we're trying to figure out is should we couple the release of shelved assets to ESG scores? So ESG is that new thing, environmental social governance, that investors are using more and more to decide on investing in responsible companies with high ESG scores or good ESG report cards compared to companies that have bad grades. 
And in fact, we're trying to figure out, because it's hard to find incentives for companies to release these drugs apart from the ethical doing good for the world and doing good for patients. So I think there is something to be done here. And we're trying to figure out how to liaise maybe more to the investor community and say, would this be an angle? Would there be an angle in the ESG, you know, giving people better ESG report cards if they are willing to do what to me is ethically the right thing to do? And what is the Orphan Drug Act and how is it significant in all of these efforts? So the Orphan Drug Act has been, in fact, an amazing initiative, right? Started in 1983. Um, Orphan disease in the U.S. is defined as less than one in 200,000 people have the disease. Um, Just to give you an an idea of numbers, between, let's say, 1973 and 1983, there were 10 orphan drug products approved. And if you look from 1983 to almost today, we're looking at about 700, over 700 drugs that are approved for more than 250 diseases. So if you look at the numbers, you feel this increase in and enthusiasm also increase in investment. I mean, that has resulted in huge attention for orphan disease. How did they do that? They do that by creating a number of incentives for company to work on um, rare diseases and orphan, drug dis- uh, orphan drugs. And the, may- the biggest incentive is, in fact, the orphan drug designation. And orphan drug designation is given to companies that are working, as the, as the word says, right, on a drug that is for orphan disease. And the advantage is that they get almost up to they get up to seven years market exclusivity. They get some federal tax credits. They get some waivers for PDUFA fees. They get um, uh, the another thing which I think is huge is that the FDA commits to significantly reduce review times, and they also provide regulatory assistance. So it's really a way to incentivize companies to work on orphan diseases compared to before 1983. Oh, that's really great. So we're speaking with Dr. Annette Bacher. She's the president of the Children's Tumor Foundation. And we're talking about orphan drugs, drugs that were lost in the pipeline or discontinued for one reason or another, and repurposing them and retesting them for other types of uh, severe indications, mostly orphan diseases. So this is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. There's a time when we're called to engage in a tradition as old as apple pie and gun cleaning, meddling in the business of other foreign governments. This week, the Brexit-free United Kingdom made a historic move to break the shackles of biotechnological ignorance. Decisions were made to potentially not regulate gene-edited crops in the same way they over-regulate transgenics and other modifications containing foreign DNA. It was a progressive step to ensure a fast-track deployment of new innovation to help farmers and the environment while controlling European food costs. The European Commission is considering public comments. That's with regard to gene editing. If you live in the EU, please fill out the form. If you don't live in the EU, you should send one too. There's no question that lesions of cut and paste crazies will blanket that website with Seralini rats and Vandana Shiva epithets. 
but are thrilled with the scientific community and its evidence-loving friends, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. So go to this catchy URL, ec.europa.eu forward slash info forward slash law forward slash better regulation forward slash have your say forward slash initiatives forward slash 13119 hyphen legislation hyphen four hyphen plans hyphen produced hyphen by hyphen certain hyphen new hyphen genomic technologies underscore en Please write something that counters the crazy. Talk about the science and the potential benefits to EU producers. Remember that we hold the power to create the change we want to see. We just need to participate. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Annette Bacher. She's the president of the Children's Tumor Foundation. And we're talking about the drugs that were lost in the pipeline and where they're possibly being reused to solve important problems. And this is a really, uh, really great project. And I, I love this. And I love that we're giving this more visibility. So you mentioned before the disease NF1 or this uh, a tumor for, for, uh, forming disease. Uh, are there any real good breakthroughs on this yet? Or what, are, what, what drugs have currently been approved towards that? So, yeah, so the first drug um, that was approved for NF1, so neurofibromatosis type 1, was a, a drug called Coseligo or Selumetinib, was approved in April 20. Um, and that was an interesting drug, was in fact a drug that was not really in super successful development by AstraZeneca, um, because in fact it was a fantastic drug for a rare disease, and it didn't have the toxicities, and just to come back about, you know, you have a molecule with the same mechanism, but the drug is slightly different. There were, at that point in time, there were drugs on the market, like trametinib is on the market, which is another MEK inhibitor. But selumetinib was doing tremendously better, honestly, for the patients with NF1. And 70% of our patients were responding with a tumor shrinkage of more than 20%. And that really got people literally out of their wheelchairs. So, I mean, this has been a drug that has given the community a, a real hope and real um, a reason to continue to fight um, against um, NF1. The other, the other drug that is interesting is kind of a repurposed drug, if you want. It's a drug that was approved for lung cancer called Brigatinib, drug from Takeda. And um, with an investment of the Children's Tumor Foundation between 2014 and 2018, we identified a number of drugs that were, in fact, surprisingly active in an NF2 setting, neurofibromatosis type 2. And brigatinib was one of those drugs that came out of that large preclinical project that was, was a global project of more than, than 20 centers that were collaborating worldwide. And now, in fact, brigatinib is in a platform trial for NF2 looking at multiple tumor indications at the same time for this drug. And that is also a drug that was, in fact, not really planned to be for NF2, but is now uh, repositioned or repurposed, if you want, for um, NF2. Um, it totally makes sense to me because you're taking molecules that have were discovered because of their biological activity, and at least in vitro or maybe in an animal model, and now giving it a new life towards a different indication 
in those same kinds of tests. But it seems to me that this would be a really challenging process to narrow down. You know, I have this inhibitor that's on the shelf, a MEK inhibitor or whatever, which is a mitogen activated kinase, uh, protein kinase. Maybe there's a way that, you know, I could use this in another disease. How do you make those decisions as to how to match the orphan with a disease, potential disease to solve? That's a very interesting question you're asking, because this is, in fact, now comes the surprise factor. So basically what we did when we started Synodos for NF2, which is that big collaborative project that we started in 2014, the clinicians and the researchers sat around the table and said, these are the 19 drugs that make sense for NF2 that we would potentially give to our patients. This makes sense, biologically speaking. They tested these 19 drugs. They came out on the other side, the cell lines. They went into the animals. None of them were spectacularly active. So there was a whole puzzling discussion going on at that time. So we had a collaboration with NCATS, which is a National Center for Advancing Translational Science, which is an NIH institution. And they said, okay, we are willing to come in and we will screen the MIPE library, which is in fact a library of drugs, of FDA-approved drugs, no logic whether they would make sense biologically for NF2, yes or no. Brigatinib came out on the other side of the tunnel. Nobody would have expected that because that drug was on the market for ALK, was an ALK inhibitor. And there is no ALK in NF2. So everybody was super puzzled. So basically, the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes by doing blind screens where you're like, okay, let's take a relevant cell model for the disease and let's do a blind screen Maybe we identify drugs that we were absolutely not expecting. And that is what happened to brigatinib. Then they had a whole team of proteomics and transcriptomics experts put onto that project. And basically, they just published a paper where they identified that brigatinib was, in fact, inhibiting targets that were very relevant for NF2, almost like a side effect of brigatinib, if you want. But that drug made it now into the clinic for NF2 patients. So sometimes it's worth just, you know, not overthinking, but just doing a screen of drugs in a relevant cell and animal model. That is really important. It really is the opposite of the current trends where you have computer geeks designing software that can use artificial intelligence uh, or machine learning to look at molecules and then use artificial intelligence to predict what the next inhibitor might be or the next active molecule might be. And this way is much more to my liking. I'm much more of a brute force guy where let's just, let's just not use artificial intelligence. Let's just take something that may work and let's just really examine everything closely to see if we can identify function. And exactly. it, it, just, it just is a really different approach. Yeah, it's, and I think we should look at both approaches. I think this whole principle of going a little bit more blind falls or stands with the relevance of the cell and animal model, right? So I think that is where what we did is we did, in fact, a parallel screen on 19 cell lines in four animal models to really make sure that this is not just a one-off in one cell that sticks to plastic, but that this is really a relevant finding, right? And that, I think, makes, makes or breaks this approach. Now, how many drugs are currently being examined in the Bridge Initiative? Um, a few, four, five. <laughs> I'm, I'm banging my head to the wall, Kevin, to get these companies willing to even open the door. I'm like, 
the annoying crazy woman that keeps standing in front of their door. <laughs> you you, you got to hire me and I'll show up with a baseball bat and we'll get, we'll get what you want. You know, cause uh, I, I mean, I just think this is such a, uh, a no brainer to me. This is like what, what companies should do with their uh, intellectual property once they've abandoned it. Yeah. And I say that I'm an inch away from disclosing the names of these companies, but you know, on the other hand, you have to be careful because you really, Nobody will want to play with you anymore when you really start to be the AIDS community, right? Yeah, but the, so you're telling me that the HIV AIDS community was really instrumental in pushing to bring novel compounds into research and move them through the pipelines. Correct. That was exactly what they have done. And they've really set the path as a learning for so many other communities to say like, hey, stop, step up, right? You're not a victim waiting for a treatment to come out you can actually do something, right? Um, now, for a community like a rare disease community where already we don't get a lot of attention, you need to balance that more, right? The age community had a huge attention because they had the whole entertainment industry behind them. They had a whole other awareness and lobby behind them that made them much stronger. Whereas as a rare disease, we, we are much I wouldn't say weaker, but I mean, we have, we have less of a voice, right? Then um, I always say we need to spend more money flirting companies into the disease than pushing them out of the disease by being nasty. Well, the HIV community is a great example of how you can mobilize resources based upon a, an emerging threat. But how do you get investors to invest in what really might be a little bit of a speculative nature of an orphan disease and orphan drugs? But I think maybe the ESG angle might be one in really getting the um, investor community. If even if one of the biggest investors, right, says this is the right thing to do, and we're not going to invest in you until you play, they will play. I always say it's like plastic recycling from from ten years ago, right? Who would put his plastic in a different bag? Until the trash pickup decided that if you don't put it in the right bag, we're not picking it up anymore. And I think we should get to that same attitude in our in our society of these drugs. It's just unethical if they're not made available. If one patient can benefit from this drug, you have to make it available. Yeah, that's why I love this. I just think it takes a little time to catch on. Because the incentives are there for the companies. The problem they get probably run into is they're so mired in IP and, you know, maybe a drug on the shelf, they th- put away thinking, well, maybe we'll take this down again sometime later. I mean, look at thalidomide. It's a really good example. Yep, exactly. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just that I always say there is one C-level person that has decided to put this drug on the shelf. And that person doesn't want to be wrong. And I think that is also a lot of the emotional resistance that we're walking into. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because it seems like such a real, really simple concept that everybody should be buying into. I mean, someone who may be helped could be, someone in your family could benefit from the drugs that would come through these pipelines. It it just seems, but it seems like there's so many um, clinical trials going on all the time. There's so many drugs that are being, uh, are not making it through approval for a given indication that this kind of thing makes total sense. But is it is it really something that is uh, economically feasible? I mean, is it really expensive to do those in vitro and animal experiments relative to uh, you know other types of trials? 
No, and and no, we, we are willing to put in the money as a foundation to de-risk the drug in an animal and cell model. And then later, I always say, if later you guys win the big cake, just send me a slice so I can keep doing the cell and animal work, right? So it's no, it's not. It's not expensive. But And, and so, in fact, maybe the last point I wanted to make is that the fact that you have a C-level person of a pharmaceutical company who really says this is the right thing to do is key. And I can only, you know, I can't thank Frida Lewis-Hall enough, who was the chief medical officer of Pfizer at the time of Springworks, who really put her shoulders under it and said, we have to do this. This is right. We just need a few more Fridas. Well, I, I love it. And I think it would really benefit the pharmaceutical companies as well, because you see them solve a problem like uh, COVID-19. You know, you get new drugs in less than a year and still there's public skepticism because they don't always trust the companies and that this kind of thing could go a long way to building that trust. And, and do you see or have any hope in the future that things like the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines being developed so fast and maybe relaxing the normal um, timeline. Do you think that's going to positively affect the deployment of orphan drugs into new indications? Uh, that's um, Yeah, that's a hard one, I think, because, you know, COVID is a whole different ballpark, right? There was a huge unmet medical need. There was a huge sense of urgency. The whole economy was down. There was a ton of money. The entire research industry was more or less put on hold to develop this COVID vaccine. So when people say normally it takes 10 years, it's true. But now nobody else could do research. Just simply the, the plastic industry that you normally, you, you know, you buy your bottles to do your cell lines in labs, they were all reserved for COVID. PCR products, no PCR product to buy because they were all reserved for COVID. So I think we've put a little bit the research community on hold for COVID. And that was, I think, the right thing to do because this was such an urgent problem to solve, like a pandemic, you have no choice. But not sure how, you know, how expandable this is to a normal life. I just hope that there are some simple things I think that we can do, like, you know, Let's get those. Let's get those drugs that are out there, and let's see what we can do with them for rare disease patients and pediatric and pediatric patients. I guess maybe a good wrap-up question would be: Is the Children's Tumor Foundation something that someone can donate to, or is this really funded by uh, investor capital? <laughs> I, w- I wish. No, no, absolutely. Can they donate to the Children's Tumor Foundation? <laughs> 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 no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, reach out to us. Info at ctf.org and, you know, join our fight by either donating or donating your time or send us your ideas how we can get these drugs out of companies because we need ideas and we need, and if C-level people from Pharma are listening, call me, do me a favor and help me. <laughs> no, this is fantastic. You know, best wishes to you and best luck of everything you're doing here. I think this is a brilliant idea that, that is that should have happened years ago. And, you know, best wishes to you on this. So thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. This was awesome. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write reviews on iTunes or wherever you consume podcast media. Tell a friend. Our numbers continue to grow and things are going great. So we'll keep expanding our numbers and it's bigger numbers that help disseminate information such as the Children's Tumor Foundation. 
to bring them more rewards, more donors that really can bring new cures from old drugs to the people that need them. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.